You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Welcome to this event that's being co-hosted by the Humanitarian Policy Group and GSMA's Mobile for Humanitarian Innovation. It's great to see so many of you joining the call. Please do introduce yourselves in the chat box. I'm Barnaby Willits-King, Senior Research Fellow with HPG, and I'm delighted to be joined today by a fantastic panel who bring perspectives from around the world on today's topic of COVID-19 and digital humanitarianism. And I'll introduce them in just a moment. We're really delighted to be partnering with GSMA on this, and we'll be hearing shortly about GSMA's new report just out on this topic. Um, here at HPG, we've been researching the interface of digital technology and humanitarian action for almost two years and put out a research paper last year looking at COVID-19 and the digital divide. So today we're going to be looking at a number of really interesting questions like what impact has COVID had on the use of digital technology in humanitarian crises? How has technology helped bridge digital divides? And what have we learned about building a stronger system to respond to hazards in the future using technology? Also, how are partnerships evolving between governments, the private sector and civil society? A few headlines from our research um, were really some predictions at the beginning that COVID-19 would radically change how digital technology is used in humanitarian action. But these haven't yet materialized. The most effective tools have been those already known to work at scale, such as providing digital cash through mobile money. By contrast, some proposed new uses of technologies, such as drones to check for fever, haven't been that effective. And others, such as contact tracing apps, might expose aid users to greater risks to their privacy or inappropriate surveillance. Marginalised groups are already at risk of being excluded by digital approaches when such tools um, are, are being used. And this is exacerbated when the tools are being used remotely, as has been necessary during the pandemic. And systems that you rush to put in place during a crisis will outlast the pandemic. So it means that you need to have really careful assessment and mitigation measures, even in the middle of an emergency. And finally, humanitarians are not using digital technology in a vacuum. They need to work more closely with a wider range of actors, governments, the private sector, and understand both the opportunities and risks that this presents. The increased and rapid uptake of digital tools clearly increases the potential for digital harm, but we haven't found as many examples as you might hope of organizations sharing how they're mitigating this. So that's an area we'd like to hear from you in the audience. I know that many of you joining today's call bring expertise and experiences of technology use in humanitarian responses. And so we'd love to hear your perspectives too. You can share your thoughts and reflections in the chat. And if you have a question for our panel, please do use the Q&A box to send these in and I'll put them to the panel a little later on. If you're on Twitter, we'll post the hashtag and Twitter handles in the chat now. Finally, closed captions are available during this event by clicking on the button at the bottom of your screen. And this event is being recorded. Uh, the video will be available on the event webpage in a couple of days time and you can listen back on the discussion through the ODI event podcast channel. Now, let's meet the panel. So firstly, I'm delighted to welcome Mahmoud Abdirahman, Director of Business Development and International Relations Division at Telesom Company. Telesom is a telecoms company that was established in 2002 in Hargeisa's Somaliland, and is one of the leading providers of ICT in the country. Mahmoud has worked for the company for the past 12 years and has led projects that work in partnership with humanitarian organizations. A very warm welcome also to Adelina Kamal. Adelina is the Executive Director of the AHA Center, the ASEAN Coordinating Center for Humanitarian Assistance on Disaster Management in Jakarta. And Adelina has led the AHA Center in facilitating ASEAN's collective response to major disasters, including back-to-back -back multiple emergencies in 2018, where the AHA Center played a major coordinating role. And prior to working with the AHA Centre, Adelina served for more than 20 years in the ASEAN Secretariat. And I'm very pleased also to be joined by Justin Colbert, Mercy Corps' Country Director for Haiti. 
Justin is an international development and public health professional with over 10 years experience across Sub-Saharan Africa, South and Southeast Asia, and the Caribbean. Justin has worked in various sectors, including disaster preparedness and response, digital financial inclusion, food, nutrition, water security, and social and behavior change. So a great panel. And we're also joined by Zoe Hamilton, who is Insights Manager for GSMA's Mobile for Humanitarian Innovation. Zoe has designed and delivered a range of research projects across M4H's thematic areas, specializing in the inclusion of marginalized communities and the issue of the digital divide. So Zoe is the author of M4H's report just released on COVID-19 and digital humanitarian action, trends, risks, and the path forward. And to kick us off, I would like to hand over to Zoe now to give us an overview of the key findings from the report. Thanks, Zoe. Great, thanks so much, Barnaby, and hello, everyone. It's, it's great to be here. As Barnaby mentioned, uh, I am an Insights Manager on GSMA's Mobile for Humanitarian Innovation team. Uh, last year, when COVID-19 began to spread around the world, uh, GSMA's Mobile for Humanitarian program faced an influx of requests from stakeholders, including from within our own portfolio, about how to ramp up digitization of services to respond to the pandemic. After a few months, the request died down, but we were left asking ourselves the question, how has the pandemic affected how humanitarian organizations use mobile technology? And what has the role of mobile network operators been in this? To answer this question, we decided to write uh, a report focusing on M4H's portfolio. That means projects we fund through our innovation fund um, and projects that we support through strategic partnerships, both of which are funded by the FCDO. Based on this research, we came to three primary findings that I wanted to, to briefly touch on before uh, I hand over to the excellent panel we have today. Uh, first, the humanitarian sector relies heavily on mobile technology, and as operations become increasingly digitized, it's unlikely to go back. Second, partnerships are key, including those that extend beyond the traditional humanitarian sector. And third, the humanitarian has exacerbated the risk of exclusion and the digital divide, and it's vital to consider the needs of marginalized communities. I'll go through each of these very briefly. So first, we found, like others, the humanitarian sector throughout the pandemic was dependent on mobile networks, and it was only through ongoing connectivity that operations were able to continue. This included both keeping in touch with staff remotely around the world and with end users. Uh, in some cases, this created challenges, network resilience and, and last mile connectivity was tested and in some cases needed to be improved. And in many cases, humanitarian staff needed to be trained in new skills. Digital skills are starting to be recognized as a core competency for humanitarians. But this dependency also led to opportunities. Uh, for example, one of the use cases highlighted in the report is information as aid, uh, a use case that was particularly useful uh, or particularly important during the pandemic. Uh, in, in any pandemic, timely, actionable, trustworthy information is key. And humanitarians in, in COVID-19 working alongside governments and mobile network operators used mobile channels to distribute life-saving information. They relearned the lesson of the, from previous public health crises around the importance of tailored, locally relevant information deliver, delivered through accessible channels. Uh, through our innovation fund, uh, we worked with Mercy Corps in Haiti, and, and Justin will speak more to this on the panel discussion. Our second finding was that partnerships are key, including those that extend beyond the traditional humanitarian sector. Uh, a second use case highlighted in the report is, is mobile money, and this illustrates this point. In Africa, over 80% of relief efforts since the start of the pandemic were in the form of, of cash assistance. Increasingly, mobile money has been a popular delivery mechanism because it can be fast, transparent, and has the potential for multiplier effects beyond the transfer itself. However, this use case highlighted the importance of partnerships. Humanitarians worked with governments as the line between humanitarian relief and social safety net programming was blurred. And those that were able to respond the quickest and the most effectively avoiding barriers like KYC requirements were those who already had partnerships in place particularly with mobile money providers. Mahmoud from Telesom, one of our strategic partners, will speak further to this on the panel. Third and finally, the pandemic has exacerbated the risk of exclusion and the digital divide, as Barnaby already mentioned. Digital programming is not perfect and it cannot be used in all contexts, especially to reach marginalized communities. However, as COVID-19 has highlighted, sometimes it's our only option available. And as we're moving towards an increasingly digitized world, whether we like it or not, we must work to 
make sure that we're doing so in the safest, most inclusive way possible. Based on what we've seen in COVID-19 across these findings, it's important to think about the future and how humanitarian organizations can work across both sectors and borders to create a more equal post-COVID world. And with that, I'll, I'll hand back to Barnaby to kick us off with the panel. Thank you. Great, Zoe, and that's really helpful in setting up. I think some of the themes that we're going to be able to dig into in, in a bit more detail, um, and I, I already see some, some questions popping up, so I think, I think lots of things to discuss. So I want to turn now to our, our panel, which um, spans the globe and spans different parts of, of the sort of the humanitarian system. So hopefully we'll get to see some really interesting different angles. Um, so I want to turn first to Mahmoud um, in Hargeisa and ask you as a mobile operator, mobile phone operator in, uh, in, in Somaliland, how have you worked as a company with humanitarian agencies to deploy technology effectively during the pandemic? What challenges have you faced in terms of the digital divide and how have you overcome them? Thank you very much, Barnaby, uh, and uh, uh, thanks for having us on the panel. Uh, in uh, the, the, the context in Somaliland, it's actually quite different. Somaliland is a, a small and new country in the world. Uh, well, new country, we, you know, we, it's not recognized yet as a country. But uh, what we have is, uh, you know, I was talking the other day, I was discussing uh, in about 28 or 27 years ago, we had absolutely no infrastructure when it comes to uh, telecom. And uh, one has to travel to neighboring countries to make an international call. And this is how technology was in about 20 or 27, eight years, uh, 28 or 27 years ago. And today people in Somaliland, uh, they enjoy one of the cheapest uh, data and voice services around the world and through connectivity we seen, we've seen uh, doctors as far as Copenhagen uh, helping remotely local doctors to uh, perform certain surgeries and so on and also uh, you know when you are somewhere else you really take it for granted all the technologies that you have but within Somaliland, as we improve the connectivity and as we improve the coverage, more and more uh, universities are open and you, know, you see the education, education sector uh, moving upwards and you also see uh, business side of things and the sort of ecosystem yeah, that you are you know, creating within uh, the telecom sector. In, in Hargeisa today, we, we have uh, cloud services such as uh, software as a service, infrastructure, infrastructure as a service, uh, platform as a service, and so on, among other value-added services that we have. Um, a connect, as connectivity improves, uh, we see a huge growth in the IC sector, a number of applications that have been developed locally is growing and we see a new trend of incubators or incubation centers that are creating more more uh, opportunities within within the country um, when uh, during the COVID-19 uh, although we came from a long way uh, from 28 years ago uh, the pandemic the pandemic really highlighted the deficient that exists among, among those who can and who cannot afford the service uh, or, or cannot afford the remote learning or distance learning for their children during the lockdown for the schools. And this is not uh, just the connectivity and availability of power, but also the tools such as computers, laptops, tablets, and so on. And during the COVID, we provided uh, phone line services for free for informal education sectors. And we also provided an online platform that uh, you know, allow schools and universities to use. Uh, but you know, this was not including everybody because uh, a bulk 
of the, the, the majority of the people were not able to access. And uh, the government of Somaliland also tried to provide remote learning through television and radios. And uh, this was kind of a one-way channel and there was, it was it lacked interactivity uh, between uh, you know, the students and, and, and the teachers. Um, and this is where we really see you know, the public and, and, and private to partner together to create uh, or to encourage to improve the connectivity and availability of the access tools for the internet so everybody can afford it and can access the system. Uh, we have also you know, created, besides having stable communication services in the country, uh, we realize there has to be a financial system that follow, that you know supports the development and the economic growth of the country. And with the lack of a formal banking system in the country, we had to think about a way of overcoming the challenges of providing the traditional services. And we saw technology to be the means to leapfrog uh, these challenges and provide a financial services that's for everyone. Uh, at the time of the launch, we recognize if we impose fees, it will undermine the, uh, the mobile wallet adaption rate due to fina uh, poor financial literacy of the community. And although we have achieved a higher penetration rate, we remain committed in maintaining no transaction fee strategy, but it's not to say that we are not uh, really creating a revenue from the service itself, uh, because the service has to be sustained. And uh, you know, we, we create a one-stop shop for the digital lifestyle of uh, the people here in, in, in Somaliland. How did we work um, or how did we try improving the humanitarian to respond to disaster situations? Somaliland has gone through uh, many natural calamities such as droughts, cyclones over the years and mobile money platform became the lifeline that helped to connect between the urban and uh, rural areas to support one another. And uh, for example, you have a, a, you know, the rural community moving from one particular region of the country and then going to another remote per, uh, region. And what happens is, is as soon as you know, the family reaches there, they will call up somebody uh, in, in, the, you know, in the cities and they will say, look, I've just you know, landed to this new area and there is a, you know, a company that is selling water or you know, food and so on. And they will ask somebody within the country just to send the money. So you know, instantly that person sends uh, mobile money to their wallet account. And uh, you know, that's what really benefited those uh, particular uh, community who were in a, in, a, in a desperate situation. With regards to humanitarian uh, organizations, we have an existing partnership with a number of agencies and we have a good understanding of the challenges that they face in delivering aid to most needed. Well, so we came up with the next generation services, which we wanted to strengthen our existing relationship by providing not just uh, efficient cash delivery, but also a cost-effective one. And uh, we also worked with the ministries and we provided, uh, besides providing a protective equipment uh, to win the fight against the COVID, we, we were one of the first operators to use the ring back tone to provide an awareness message. And actually this was quite, became a ripple effect around the world. So everybody, you know, the neighboring countries and everybody else has been, you know, they, they start using the ring back tone. So usually operators do charge the ring back tone. So the user selects whatever ring back tone that they wanted to hear when they dial somebody or somebody dials them. But instead of a really generating revenue from it, we, you know, broadcast the message that the Ministry of the Health uh, was trying to 
get through to the, you know, to, to, to the population. And uh, finally, what we came up was uh, with the support of the GSMA, and uh, we, we've done a pilot project with Care International where we provided a new solution. Uh, this solution provides seamless access uh, to their funds to those who are in desperate situation in a more dignified way while addressing two major challenges in the humanitarian space, which is identification and also cost reduction. Uh, the humanitarian agents, there is a, a fatigue among the donors where you know, people sometimes do not want to pay more money to the humanitarian agencies. So we wanted to come up with a solution where they use their funding in more cost effective way and more efficient. And this was uh, to come up with a solution that does a remote verification. So we came up with a, a voice uh, verification, uh, voice ID verification platform that allowed uh, users to access the funding remotely without actually being mobilized in a one particular area. And one of the things that uh, the recipients uh, praised upon was uh, they said, look, you know, I didn't have to queue. Uh, it was really more dignified way. I was at home, you know, uh, looking after my, uh, my animals and, uh, you know, the money came straight through my account. So they didn't have to go and queue with them. Uh, being identified as someone who is receiving uh, uh, funding or, or support. Um, so uh, I'll leave you to Tanabi. Uh, I hope I answered the, the questions that you ask. That's perfect. No, thanks, Mahmoud. That's, I mean, a really interesting example of, of, of how the technology has been used, you know, before the pandemic, but how that's changed and particularly the use of mobile money. Um, and really interesting to, to dig into that a little bit more um, in the Q&A. Um, so thank you, Mahmoud. Really interesting to kick us off. I want to go now to Adelina in Jakarta and, and ask you, um, you know, very different uh, sort of context in Southeast Asia, but what lessons have you learned at the AHA Centre on how best to use digital technology to respond to crises in your region and, and how has COVID-19 affected this? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Barnaby. Thank you, HPG, ODI and uh, GSMA for having me. Uh, greetings from Jakarta, Indonesia. It's evening time here. Uh, to answer your question, uh, COVID-19 definitely changed the way we do things. Uh, we, it was not easy for us in the beginning. Uh, because we had to change our approach and we had to change our mindset. Uh, prior to COVID-19, when, the, when the, there's a large-scale catastrophic disaster happening in one of the ASEAN countries, then we would fly out to the affected ASEAN country. We would um, meet with the National Disaster Management Organization of the affected country and the relevant stakeholders. We would send our uh, regional assessment team, we, will, we would send our in-country team and we would set up our on-site coordination structure on the ground. Even in Jakarta at our emergency operations center, we would have our partners in our EOC from the UN, the Red Cross, the civil society, the ASEAN missions in Jakarta, the military sector working together, working closely with our disaster monitoring unit to issue flash update and situation update. Um, but this had to change, right? And yes, COVID-19 highlighted the important role and the positive role of technology. However, based on our experience, techno technology is an enabler. There are three key, sorry, three key, key, key ingredients. Um, and these are, uh, according to our experience, are trust, value, and networks. So when we talk about digital humanitarianism, there are two aspects here, digital and humanitarianism, and also the relationship between digital and humanitarianism. So let's talk about digital first, digital technology. The way I see it, what is the purpose of digital technology? 
for us is to, uh, to cut layers, layers in information technology, layers in terms of resource mobilization, layers in terms of service delivery. So in information management, technology has enabled us, including AHA Center, to provide remote support for assessment so that we don't need to send assessment teams on the ground. In terms of resource mobilization, we have uh, learned from Mahmoud that technology allowed us to send money, the mobile money, directly to the beneficiaries. And in terms of service delivery, technology allowed us to provide trainings remotely. And that all because of technology. So digital humanitarianism should allow this, should allow the humanitarian system to cut layers so we can reach out to the beneficiaries more effectively and more rapidly. Then we go back to your question. The early prediction of HPG, the question why COVID-19 has not radically changed the way technology is used in humanitarian sector. Why? Why has not the system changed radically? Radical change is called disruption making the status quo irrelevant. Innovation is less radical. It challenges the status quo. So, so then why is it there is a slower change in humanitarian sector even with the COVID-19? Because disruption, changing the status quo is rarely an internal driven process. It's always the outside force. Think Uber versus taxi company. Think Airbnb versus hotel industry. Think, think Gojek in our case in Indonesia versus Bluebird company, Bluebird taxi. So why internal force cannot make the radical change as you predicted? because not everybody within the system may be comfortable about changing the status quo. We tend to think in a group, thinking approach. We follow the pack. And the contrarian approach is not well rewarded and considered even controversial. So if you want, to you want the current system to radically change Barnaby, I think it won't happen if we only rely the internal system. Because what? We can still survive somehow. And there are no benefits. There are no gains in terms of changing the status quo. So the humanity is, is industry or the system is also too big. <laughs> On the other hand, radical change will only come from the outside. And that's what we call unicorn. That's what we call startup. Then let's talk about humanitarianism. I mentioned earlier is technology is an enabler. Based on our experience in Southeast Asia, there are three key ingredients, ingredients, trust, value, and networks, as I said uh, earlier. Why trust, is why trust is important? Because if there is no trust, then you cannot have the access. Why value is important? Value means we bring something to the table. We bring meaningful contribution to the affected community. Always ask the question, what is our meaningful contribution for them, not for us? It's never about us. Why network is important? And that is partnership, as Zoe mentioned, because we cannot simply work alone to understand every context and every corner of the world. So if we have strong value proposition, we have technology, but no trust, no network, no partnership, then we will leave ourselves alone with our resources. I will leave it at that. And uh, let's uh, have discussion further. Over to you, Barnaby. Thanks so much, Adeline. A really interesting reflections on, on some of the some of the ingredients of what, what works and, and what doesn't work and, and what we need to think about kind of a little bit more, you know, strategically big picture. So, so thank you so much for that. I want to turn now to, to Justin um, in Haiti and ask you about your experience there with, with Mercy Corps. Maybe if you could pick up on some of the themes that, that um, Mahmoud and, and Adelina have raised. What, I mean, what's different in, in Haiti? What have been some of your key takeaways in responding during the pandemic there? Thanks, Barnaby. 
So um, Mercy Corps has been in Haiti since 2010. Um, and to pick up on Adelina's points about uh, radical change versus innovation, um, we had been working over the past few years, um, especially with GSMA, to think about how do we do more com inclusive communications around uh, preparedness for hurricane season. Um, <clears throat> this led us to uh, contact a social enterprise, uh, Viamo, <clears throat> which has a mission to connect individuals and organizations to make better decisions via mobile. So, so these partnerships, these innovations were things that we we're already uh, uh, testing uh, even before COVID-19. Um, so the first cases in Haiti were announced March of last year. Um, and we already had this extensive partnership um, uh, with this social enterprise that, that can harness uh, the digital infrastructure that exists in Haiti. Um, and, and so when COVID hit, we had to rethink, you know, how can we pivot our existing programs um, to, to continue to deliver uh, impact to the communities that we serve um, and to deliver that in a different way while still maintaining those, those inclusive aspects. Um, you know, Mercy Corps, we were using interactive voice response, um, a technology for interactive uh, uh, robocalls, um, calls with, uh, uh, through, the, through the mobile system. We were also using um, mobile money um, as a part of uh, some of our social safety programs and our food security programs. Um, so so when, when COVID reached Haiti, you know, the first step for us was to ensure that our team understood this new context, that understood what our communities were going through, and, and were, were able to think about the necessary adaptations across the entire portfolio. I mean, this included how do we keep our team safe? Um, how do we limit exposure um, in communities, which, which uh, pointed us towards that existing partnership with Biamo. Um, the second step was content design with the constituents. So we knew that, you know, as a, as a function of the infodemic, um, our program participants were getting all kinds of information through Twitter, through TikTok, through WhatsApp, through Facebook. Um, and, and so we needed to meet them where they were at in terms of the types of information that they already had access to. Um, so, so we did an information ecosystem assessment to understand where does the trust lie? Who are the trusted voices? What are the trusted platforms? How do people access information? And then how do they turn around and share that information outwards to those that trust them? Um, we put up a hotline, a free hotline, uh, with interactive content that was designed specifically with five different personas in mind. So, so we created these personas using a human-centered design process, um, working with community partners, um, and, and these five personas uh, responded to different beliefs and different needs um, along the spectrum of inform information access and socioeconomic status. So, so you could, we, we made sure that our different community uh, members could, could see themselves in one of these five personas. Um, then using, once, once we had these personas set up uh, and the hotline was live, we leveraged the partnership with Digicel, who's uh, one of the biggest telecoms in Haiti, uh, to target users in an anonymous and aggregated way. Um, we were able to reach users based on uh, which uh, antennas they were connected to, um, how much uh, uh, savings they had in their mobile wallet, um, without actually revealing the identities of those participants. We were actually able to specifically target people along uh, different uh, segments of uh, the socioeconomic status and access to information. Um, the last thing that I wanted to say before I go into my takeaways was that we also made sure that we were uh, looping back our information with the Ministry of Health. We wanted to uh, not duplicate what they were saying, um, but present a parallel story to what they're saying to build that overall trust in the information that was being provided, all the while using the information that was shared back with us through these interactive calls um, to feed back to the Ministry of Health and help inform how they were adapting their messages over the context of the pandemic, over the, over the life of the pandemic. Um, so in, in terms of takeaways from this program, um, it, uh, the, uh, in, in our response to COVID-19, I mean, it was, it was hugely successful. We were able to reach, you know, 2.2 million uh, Haitians, which is over 20% of the population um, with, with key messages around COVID-19. Um, and and we, we realized that, you know, COVID-19 provided the impetus to enhance our traditional behavior change approach, approaches by adding on that layer of mobile tech. 
by adding on that layer of interactivity when we weren't able to do those face-to-face -face meetings. Um, we also realized that it's existentially important to spend sufficient time thinking through the human factors. What is the access to information? What are the levels of trust? How does my socioeconomic status influence my information sources and influence my level of being able to take risks, but also my level of being able to adopt protective behaviors against COVID-19. Um, the third and uh, nearly last uh, point that we took away was that mobile also presents a unique opportunity for ease data analytics. Every interaction that we had with participants through the IVR platform allowed us to collect information uh, about uh, what their beliefs were, what, what their fears were. Um, and so this through kind of um, question and answer sessions using the IVR platform, uh, asking people, you know, do you believe this rumor about COVID, yes or no? And then they would respond and then we would say, good, you know, you're, you're plugged into the right information sources, keep it up. Um, or, or to be able to correct um, disinformation um, was really important. The final point um, goes back to this trust element. So it, it was important when we started off to start off with kind of low risk, commonly accepted sort of messages um, and, and to, to create a dialogue uh, with uh, our communities. Um, once we built that trust, we were slowly able to point to other trusted source of information. Um, so, so we were able to you know, link our system more with the Ministry of Health or with other systems that were, that were available in Haiti at the time. And I think that that trust point, I mean, that's been brought up a couple times over this call. And that's, that's been really important um, as far as creating that dialogue and, and building off of that over the course of time. That's all for me, thanks. Great, thanks, Justin. And, and I mean, some really interesting themes Kind of resonating with with what Adelina and Mahmoud were, were talking about. Um, lots of interesting uh, resonance there about partnerships needing those in place, but also how those evolve. Um, these questions around around trust and and information, um, and the importance of, of of sort of putting people at the centre and, and the local context. So we've got time for some of the questions. The um, the the Q and A has has been has been buzzing. Um, so I'm going to try and pick out some of the themes and and go back to the panelists with with some of the questions. Um, I mean, I really want to pick up pick up which has come through in some of the questions, and and I think all of you talked about this this question of trust and how that is a really important. I mean, you said it as one of your three factors, Adelina. Um, so maybe I could come to you and ask ask you first about. How do you build trust when it can be a barrier for people to use new technologies? And particularly when you're trying to do this remotely, how do you do that? And I think one of the, one of the questions in the chat, which I think is really related is then, particularly when you've got around COVID, you've got disinformation, you've got rumor, and that can really undermine trust. What have been some of your experiences of how to build trust and, and how to retain trust when there's so many different swirling rumors um, that people are trying to, to navigate? I could go to you, Adelina. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's a very interesting question. Uh, so thank you for that. And definitely it's not uh, easy, but let's uh, re-examine the question here. Is trust really a barrier for the affected population to use a new technology? It's really the problem, the trust of the people on the new technology. The barrier perhaps may not be the trust of the affected population towards the new technology. The barrier may be towards the people or the organization behind it. When you have a life crisis, who will you listen to? Someone that you know already, that you trust already, or someone new? It's very difficult to build trust during crisis. Building trust itself is a long-term game. And you all know that long-distance relationship is uh, very difficult compared to face-to-face. -face. How long have we known each other, Barnaby? 10 years, perhaps, since the establishment of AHA Center. So every time you contacted me, you just I'm just WhatsApp away, right? And I would respond right away because I know 
people from the ODI, from HPG for a long time. We have met in several occasions. So the, the process is very quick already because we have known for quite some time. We have talked a lot through many occasions. But if it is a new partner and building uh, all that during COVID-19 when crisis happens and we don't know them, it's going to be very difficult. It will take a long process. Uh, so, so then what to do if we can only do it remotely? Will it stop us from building trust and building networks and creating values and partnership? So perhaps if we have, if we really have to do it remotely, then why don't develop it through the partners at the local level, local partners that are trusted by the affected population, by the local population. But we should also be careful, yeah? Consider them as partners, not your contractors. It has to be win-win situation. And at the end of the day, we also need to ask ourselves again, and this is my message also for the HPG ODI CDAC uh, uh, webinar, create resilience, not reliance. So when we want to build the trust, the objective is to create partnership. The trust will be broken if they knew that after that, you will create really a reliance. Then it's not actually the technology that you offer, it's you, it's us, it's us, right? So, so therefore trust is very important, value is important, networks is important, but I think our intention is also important. And the success indicator should also be clear. Is the success indicator to make people more reliant on us or resilient? Is the success indicator when we train people to make them better than us or for us to get engaged all the time? If we keep providing training for 20 years to the same community, there is something wrong. So it's not about the new technology. It's not about technology. It's about us. Thank you. Thanks, Adelina. Yeah, really interesting that I think this sort of keeping the focus not just on, on the technology, but, but trust is a much bigger, bigger thing. I mean, I want to kind of ask you, Mahmoud, a, a sort of, yeah, related question around, around trust. And I think this question of how you build partnerships, and you've talked already about sort of the partnership you built with Care International. Um, one of the things that, one of the questions in the, in the Q&A has been about, what about where, you know, you're in this quite sensitive position between humanitarian organizations, individuals sometimes vulnerable, seeking assistance. How have you built those partnerships and built trust? Um, you know, when people are, sometimes they don't trust you know the, the 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 public sector. They don't necessarily trust the humanitarian organisation. What's what's your experience from from Telesom's point of view? Uh, from <laughs> operators' point of view, uh, we we had um, the mobile money for about ten years, and uh, over the over that long ten years, uh, we established that trust. Uh, this would have been a very different question if you would have asked me back in 2009 when everything was new and we had to teach people and the sort of slogans that we were using at the time to tell them uh, with this platform you're going to save and you're going to send money to your relatives and receive payments and so on. And, uh, you know, people were very uh, skeptic. And they were saying, how can I trust uh, digital currency? So that was uh, you know, a, bit, a, bit of a, a bit of a challenge. But then as soon as they see the use cases and they manage to use for everyday lives, go to the groceries and use your mobile uh, money, go to a restaurant using your mobile money. And we created that sort of a value for them. Then you know, you know, the trust slowly builds up the trust slowly build this up. And we really don't have any issues because um, 
I don't know if you are aware of it, but uh, the active rate for the mobile money in Somaliland is about 78%. So most people are using the platform and already familiar uh, use of use case of digital currency. And there was uh, never issues about people not trusting the system itself. But uh, in terms of the, the partnerships, uh, the cash for, for voucher, uh, the CPA, uh, it's been around for a number of years now as well. And uh, humanitarian agencies have been able to use a bulk payment, a mobile money bulk payment system where they will uh, you know, send a bulk payment to so many dispersed uh, communities. Uh, instantly. So, uh, you know, but when we came up with the solution, which was actually, you know, we, we almost launched about the right time with the COVID, uh, with the voice verification platform. And, uh, you know, we, we went to the communities and or, you know, the NGO, the international uh, NGO went to the community and they mobilized the community and they told the community that, you know, they will be getting their payments through their voice. And we had to create that awareness and process and we had, we had to inform the community beforehand before actually, you know, uh, putting them on, onto the platform. So, you know, you, you, you talk to them, you inform them, you let them know, know how to use the system itself. And then when they see the use cases and how seamless it is, then they were able to trust the system itself. And, um, you know, from a humanitarian perspective, this gives uh, transparency. So you can actually get a real time data and you can actually see in real-time terms of how many people collected their payments through the system so and which can then be shown to the donors uh, for an audit purposes in real time so the donors can actually see themselves as well that their you know the money that they contributed to whatever disaster that they were managing at the time it's actually being seen and they can actually see that data and they get that data instantly. So, uh, you know, the, these kind of a thing built the trust and, you know, working relationship with the humanitarian agents for a number of years that also helped. And, uh, you know, it's always nice to build as early as possible before you actually introduce any sort of a new product or any sort of a service. And um, we were lucky because uh, both the humanitarian and both Telesom, we were all working towards a common goal. So uh, how do we improve and how do we reduce uh, the cost of uh, you know, identifying the recipients and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, really it went quite well as, uh, you know, uh, and the success rate was, was amazing, almost, uh, it was about 97% success rate, uh, which gave us quite a bit of an encouragement for both the humanitarian aspect side and also from the mobile operator side. Fantastic. I mean, really, yeah, another interesting sort of detail from, from Somaliland. Uh, I wanted to sort of ask you, ask you a similar question, Justin, in terms of your experience there, but particularly maybe bringing in as well as the sort of trust and partnership, and, and, and we've heard a bit about how that's been developed. A couple of questions around how do you ensure the sort of the voices of the affected community, and particularly looking at this question of the digital divide, are there any particular kind of gender sensitive approaches that you've, you've found successful in order to ensure equitable access? Thanks for the question, Barnaby. Um, so for so for making sure that the the voices of the communities in which we work are included, I mean it was absolutely essential to um, turn to our Haitian organization partners as a part of that information ecosystem assessment, as a part of that design of our platform, um, making sure that you know that the types of messages are the messages that will speak well, that present like Mahmoud said 
um, a use case, a compelling use case um, to to the communities. Um, I you know I can give you know two quick examples that also tie into the gender aspects. You know we did note that when schools closed down, that this created a lot of tension on families. This created a lot of issues um, with uh, increasing stress in the household. Um, so one of the things that we built into our platform was. Um, uh, you know, welcome to the Labe platform. Are your kids driving you crazy? Press three and then give them the phone. And then we had these facilitators uh, guide them through uh, hand washing songs, um, sharing uh, key messages around uh, COVID-19 in, in a child-friendly way, but but also talking about stress management. And it's, it's okay to be nervous about what you're hearing on the radio. Um, talk to your mom or dad about it. Talk to your grandparents about it. You know, here are things that you can do as a child to stay safe. And we got a, a lot of positive feedback around um, uh, from parents um, on, on that specific module. I mean, another one that we did was um, kind of a, a call and response joke uh, methodology, which is which is very common in Haiti, um, and it's called click clack. And, and it's basically a knock-knock joke, right? For those of you familiar with knock-knock jokes, um, in which we would have, you know, female voices um, going back and forth and sharing uh, impo uh, information, validated information with one another, but but in a in 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 a low-pressure sort of way. Um, and and I think that it's important that you know those those ideas were given based on our consultation with our partners, and then also the voices that we put on our platform were, were recognizable voices, men's voices, women's voices, children's voices, um, so, so, that, so that the community members in which we were, were working, they could also see themselves in those voices. And I think that that's, that's a part of, you know, making sure that the message passes, making sure that people connect, but then also, uh, you know, around trust, maybe people that don't know Mercy Corps, uh, they, they really like these messages and then they refer them on to someone else. And so, so you're developing trust between neighbors um, when, when Mercy Corps did not start off with that trust ourselves, right? So, so I think that, that that gets around to the gender sensitive components. I hope that that's, uh, uh, that responds to the question. Yeah, that's great, Justin. Really, really interesting. It sounds like a fascinating part of the, part of the project. Um, there's there's a there's a whole lot of questions in the in the question and answer that we're not going to be able to get to um, things around financial literacy, digital literacy, um, which maybe we can sort of pick up on in in future discussions. Um, conscious of where we are in the in the hour, I just wanted to kind of come back to you all and ask, as a final reflection, thinking ahead, kind of looking to the future as we hopefully start to come out of this this pandemic. What would you say are the priorities for how we should engage with technology in, in humanitarian action in the future? What have we learned from, from this, this year or more of, of having to adapt to COVID-19? Um, maybe I wanted to go to Mahmoud first to ask you this sort of looking ahead, what have we learned? Hi, uh, Barnaby. Um, <clears throat> It's really, um, you know, some some of the humanitarian agencies. It's it sometimes some sometimes it is a bit difficult to change old habits or something that you get used to it, which has been a norm for a number of years. And uh, you know, it, and it's good to try out new things and see um, how you know the, the that is responding to what you're trying to achieve. And um, you know, with, with, with technology, you can really leapfrog all some, some of the hurdles that you, know, that you normally go through. So yeah, technology, it's uh, without you know, leaving uh, the human side or the empathy side, it's you know, a tool that you can use to achieve um, you know, a, a desired goal which is you know to help people and to ensure uh, that they get the adequate safety net that they are looking for so um, uh, you know I, I would encourage you know the humanitarian agencies uh, to work with the technology providers to come up with these solutions but both 
from operator side and from uh, humanitarians that uh, you really have to be open minded and uh, you know uh, be both willing to work together to achieve that common goal Great, really important messages there. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, same question I wanted to ask you, Justin, in, in Haiti, this question of, yeah, what, what does the future, you know, what can we learn from the past for the future in terms of how we engage with technology in humanitarian action? Yeah, I think that um, we need to always identify first and foremost, the human problems, right? Um, what, are, what, are, what are the relationships that exist? What, we, you know, we've talked about trust, we've talked about partnership and networking. I mean, the, the problems often stem from these outside crises that push us as people um, to, 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 to seek solutions. And, and by starting with like the human-based solutions and then layering the technology on top, I think that that's when we see uh, uh, an, an effective combination that, that is allowed, that, that, that really makes a big impact, right? Um, because a lot of times we, we tend to, you know, uh, use technology and try to use it for everything, right? And, and it's the solution to everything, but, and, and it, it can enhance most of our programs, I would say, but, but we really need to focus on the, the human problem at the beginning um, and, and try to bring those adapted technology solutions to that when, when they're appropriate. Yeah, no, really, that, that's, that's a really clear message. I think that's coming through from a lot of the examples in very different situations, very different contexts, this, this kind of human element. So Adelina, what are your final thoughts on this, this question looking ahead? What have we learned? Um, what have we learned? Um, if we only use technology um, and we don't consider the elements, the other elements, and these are what I have mentioned earlier, uh, the trust, the value proposition, as well as the networks, then we will not be able to maximize the potentials of technology for humanitarianism, for our human, uh, humanitarian work. And that is uh, going to be really unfortunate. Um, so that's one, right? Um, so, so then um, if we, if there are super digital tools out there, right? And if these three elements or ingredients, it can be more than uh, three, are not uh, fully addressed, then uh, when we bring digital tools to the affected communities, we will actually further deep, deep, deepen the humanitarian digital divide and we will bring more inequalities in our uh, communities. So I think we really have to be very careful uh, when we bring in technologies without considering the humanitarian element. So when we talk about digital humanitarianism, always think not only about technology and technologies enabler, but the three, uh, uh, the three key, key ingredients that I've mentioned. We should never have any wild imagination that uh, we can go around the trust issue very easily by building superb technology, as I mentioned. It just doesn't work that way. We will never be able, because we talk about digital humanitarianism, it's not only about digitalization, digital humanitarianism, right? So the core ingredient of humanitarianism, that is trust will have to be there. Our problem in the humanitarian world is not about technology. Technology is not the issue here. Our problem has been that on the trust, the trust deficit among the key actors involved. So digital humanitarianism in the future will only create values if the element of trust is involved and is addressed as the main dish, not the side dish. Thank you. Fantastic, thanks for that. And uh, I'm, I can only offer you a very quick dessert um, after all of that. Um, really interesting reflections, really, 
I was going to say some some food for thought, which seems seems very appropriate um, following on from that. Um, we are now out of time. So I just want to say a really warm thanks to our wonderful panel for joining us today and sharing their their thoughts from you know all different corners of the globe to uh, GSMA for this really fruitful, interesting collaboration. And thank you to everyone who's tuned in and taken part in the discussion. Lots of questions that we weren't able to get to. So we, we will share links to the reports that we've discussed today in the chat box, as well as some further links to uh, things that you might be interested in. Um, there will be a recording of this event on the event webpage where you registered in a few days time. So please do share that with your networks and um, you know feel free to watch it again. And on that note, I want to wish you all a very good day and thank you all again. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.